0: Jimmy and I were talking a little bit earlier, and you know there are some things that you kind of tune the preacher out when he starts down that road because you're like, well, that's a preachery thing that he's supposed to say, and so sometimes you kind of turn the guy off. Uh, Let me tell you, you may be tempted to do that today because we're going to talk about true faith and false faith. And I know some of y'all are going to be saying, man, I, I have been a member of West Laurel Baptist since before you were born. And so don't tell me about false faith. I don't need to hear about that. But, guys, it's hard to see. It's, it's like that pride we were talking about. If you have a false faith, it is almost impossible, once you've been in the church for decades, to come to that realization. So I would ask you to tune in and stay tuned in while we talk about this. We're going to be in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. For while bodily training is of some value... Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and full and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers, an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So, folks, the, the thing that we fail to realize a lot of times is if we are not growing in those things that verse 12 mentions, if we're not becoming more like Christ in our speech, in our conduct, in our love, in our faith. And in our purity, we need to ask why. We don't need to say, well, that's just how I am. You know, I've been this way for decades and I'm going to be this way till I die. If you're not advancing in godliness, if you're not changing who you are and becoming more like Christ, then from what I can understand from the word, there's one reason for that. And that reason is that you're not in Christ in the first place. Number one, I want us to see that false faith falls away. Verse one says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So the Bible tells us here and in other places that we are to expect apostasy. Apostasy is the falling away from the church and from God. Which these first uh, century Christians would have seen as the same thing and truly which we ought to see as the same thing. Now, if you, if you stop going to this church and start going to another church, that's not you falling away from the church. That's you deciding, hey, I want to go see this preacher because he's more fun to look at and that's so it's okay that's not falling away from the church falling away from the church is when you decide you don't need the fellowship of believers as we looked at last week it says don't forsake the assembling together of yourselves and you say well yeah i know god says that but i'm smarter than he is so i'm going to forsake assembly that is that is falling away um that occurs when someone has claimed to be a believer, but then does not persevere in the faith. Now, I would not call a, a kid who adopts the faith of his parents and then has doubts later on. I wouldn't call that person an apostate. But somebody who has committed this sin of apostasy and falling away from the church is somebody that has come and they've hung around the church. Uh, they've gotten to know the gospel, understand the gospel, believe the gospel, and then change their minds. Now you may be saying, hang on. If you believe the gospel, you're saved, right? And, and something that we hold to and cherish and is taught in the Bible is that once you're saved, you remain that way. Well, let me just point out that Satan knows the truths of the gospel. He could tell you the gospel. He knows what they are. And he knows they're true. So in that sense, Satan believes the gospel. Salvation comes as we believe the gospel, repent of our sins, and place our faith in Jesus as the only hope of our salvation. Now Satan certainly doesn't do that. So there is submission there when there is genuine faith and repentance. You know, we, we talk about these illustrations where we say, well, you know, I believe this bench will hold me up, but it's not holding me up. And if I really want to place my faith in that bench, I'm going to go sit on the bench and see if it holds me up, right? So we can believe correct doctrine without placing our faith in Christ. Without saying, hey, Lord, without you, I am doomed, I am damned, but I'm going to trust you and only you to save me. So when someone falls away from the faith, don't let it shake your own faith. Um, I served at a church previously where uh, the pastor was, uh, I don't, let's see, got to be careful. The pastor was very confident, um, I'll say. Anyway, he, uh, he never took a, took a second to see if what he was doing was destructive to other people. And uh, there was something that happened there. And the senior adult pastor was a, much older than me and much wiser than me. And he came to me and said, Steve, don't let this guy shake your faith. And I said, "This is not going to shake my faith because my faith is not in that guy. My faith is in Christ, so it's not going to shake me up. Well, like I said, this guy was older than me and wiser than me. And it did actually mess with my spiritual life to see a pastor act the way this guy did. And so when you see someone fall away from the faith, don't let it shake you up. Actually, it should confirm your faith because the word tells us that people will fall away. The Spirit told us to expect it. Now, if someone falls away, does this contradict the doctrine of eternal security of the believer? It does not, because those who fall away are described this way in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. So John believed in eternal security, right? John said if they were really part of the church, I don't mean their name was on the membership. I mean they were baptized in the spirit and they were part of the body of the church. If they were really of us, they wouldn't have departed. But since they did depart, we can see that they weren't really of us. Now I don't want to suffer persecution. um, But when and if we do, we'll see who goes and who stays. Right. You can be a church member here. You can like the music, tolerate the preaching, genuinely enjoy the fellowship. But you can be here and never have repented of your sins, placed your faith in Jesus as the only hope of salvation and submitted yourself to him because there's no persecution here. You know, we don't know if you would stick through persecution or not. And you say, well, I don't know if you would. Right. That's something we need to personally deal with. We need to ask the Lord, am I the genuine article? Is there evidence in my life that gives me biblical reason to say that I'm in the faith? Because guys, coming to church is not hard. We got good music. We we have a comfortable place here. We hang out with our friends. Who doesn't want to do that? That's not hard. A lost person can do that and can enjoy it. So we need to look for other signs that will reassure us that we're in the faith. Are you growing in your love for the Lord, for his word, and for his church? If not, the only rational thing for you to do is be concerned. Now guys, I know people that say they've been believers forever, and they don't read the word, they don't want to read the word, they might get talked into reading the Word one year and, you know, doing that plan that we did. And then they're like, man, I'm glad that's over. I'm never going to do that again. Okay, so if, if you're in the category of somebody who's been a believer a long time, but your love for the Word is not growing, there's, there's a problem there. I'm not saying you're not saved, but I'm saying be concerned, okay? That is a symptom of a problem. If you don't want to be in the fellowship of believers, now I don't mean if you're, you know, don't feel good and have a have a footache. But I mean, if generally you don't want to gather with the believers, well, that's an issue, and you need to take a look and see what's behind that symptom, because it's a symptom of something wrong. I mean, if you woke up in the morning and your right leg wouldn't work, you wouldn't just go, huh, I guess that'll pass. You'd, you'd seek attention, right? You'd say, there is a problem, there is a symptom going on, and I need to make sure that there's not some terrible thing underlying this. So if you lack spiritual growth over an extended period of time, then you are seeing the warning sign of poor health at best and no life at worst. And if you see that warning sign, do something about it. Check. Guys, it's not bad to occasionally test yourself and see if you're in the faith. You know how I know? Because the Bible says test yourself to see if you're in the faith. It's an okay. It's a good thing to do. Some will depart from the faith because they were never truly in the faith. So the first thing is that false faith falls away. The second thing I want us to see is that false faith, uh, false teaching is demonic in its origin. Uh, verse 1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings... Of demons, guys. We cannot compromise at all, ever, with false teaching. Now, I don't mean that if one brother has a slightly different understanding of some orthodox doctrine that we need to fight about it. Um, That is actually very problematic in any church. What I do mean is that we're if we're tempted to listen to just any and every teacher who claims to be a Christian, that we're going to be listening to the doctrines of demons in that if we fail to have discernment. So we need to make sure that we are not putting garbage in our heads, right? You know that, that saying about computers, garbage in, garbage out with programs. We don't need to put garbage in our heads. So we need to have discernment as who to listen to and who not to listen to. If you listen to one of the TV preachers who tells you that God is a genie who will do what you want if you rub him the right way. Um, You know, interestingly, the right way to rub the genie is to give that dude all your money. But anyway, if you listen to those guys, that is poison seeking in seeping in through your ears and and you just don't want to do that. So if you're tempted to listen to these guys just to see what they're saying or to say, hey, there's some good stuff. I'll chew up the meat, spit out the bones. Let me urge you not to do that. We don't need to associate with the doctrine of demons. It's bad for you. You know, Joseph Smith and Mohammed may have seen angels, but if they did, they were fallen angels. Anyone teaching anything other than the apostolic faith that was handed down to us in scripture, is teaching demonic doctrine. I know that's not very inclusive or ecumenical, but it's true. So we see that, first of all, false faith falls away. Second, false teaching is demonic. Now let's look at some of the characteristics of false teachers. Verse 2 says, Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared... All right, he's not holding back, is he? He's telling you how it is. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. False teaching is demonic in origin, but it's human in agency. It is spread by insincere liars, is what it says here. So how can they seem sincere, right? Some of the TV preachers, man, they seem sincere. They can beg for your money with all sincerity. And uh, it's because their consciences are seared. They have cauterized their consciences so they don't feel anymore. I hope you see what I mean about not having anything to do with, with minor uh, disagreements about finer points of theology where both guys are doctrinally sound. Okay? That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about liars who are insincere and seared in their conscience. This is a different animal. The Spirit is warning the church of teachers who are uh, just so corrupt that they don't have any conscience to hold them back. What do they teach? Well, I can tell you that they teach some form of quid pro quo because Satan is a one-trick pony when it comes to false doctrine. Uh, Demonic religion is like a cake that is made of of filth and, and maggots and corruption, but it has this nice veneer of, of uh, what do you, what's the stuff you put on a cake? Icing. Icing. It has that st- uh, nice veneer of icing to make it look appetizing. But inside it is rotten and it leads to death. And every one of the false doctrines are like that. They may have different color icing. They may have sprinkles on there. They may all these different things to make them look different. But at their core, they are the same thing, which is, I do something in order to get God to do something back. Let's look at specifically what this version that these teachers were saying was. These false teachers forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. The point of all religion, both true religion and false religion, is to find out how I get right with God, right? I mean, that's the point. Is me and God getting on getting on good terms. False religions answer is always that I do something, I perform somehow in order to get God's favor. In this case, I don't get married and I don't eat certain foods in order to get good with God. Now that doesn't even make sense, as the following verses will point out. Verse 3 says, Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created, God created these foods to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So God creates just good stuff, and then Satan gets all of it and perverts it, but the things that God creates are good. Marriage and bacon are two of my very favorite things. <laughs> so when it says, don't get married and abstain from certain foods, man, that is, that is corrupting a really good gift right there. So I'm going to receive them with thanksgiving because I know the truth. Now, we've looked at false faith, false teaching, and false te- teachers. Now, let's look for a moment at the contrast that comes in the following verses, which describe a good servant of Christ Jesus. A good servant warns people of error. Verse 6 says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Well, what things? Well, these false teachings that we've been talking about, right? So the word brothers there should really be brothers and sisters, I believe, um, because that word can be, it's a Delphoi, and it can be translated as men or a or, or mixed group of men and women. And it should be men and women because he's talking about the church. So put these things before the brothers and sisters, before the church. How can we discern false teaching? Well, there's one way, and that is by being trained, okay, we're back in that verse, by being trained in the words of the faith, And of the good doctrine, as the rest of the verse states there. A good servant is a student of the Bible. We need to be so thoroughly familiar with the truth that we recognize false teaching when we encounter it. That is the best way to go about it. If we take the other approach, which is we study all the false doctrines, uh, then we'll know a lot about what we don't believe, but we won't really know what we do believe, right? So what we need to do is saturate our minds in the Word of God and in the truth. And that way, when we do encounter error and false doctrine, we will be able to recognize it. Guys, knowing the truth is is better than just rejecting other things. For instance, uh, I don't want you to think, you know, I shouldn't get drunk, and then think, why not? Well, I don't really know. Um, It's just... It doesn't sound churchy to get drunk, and the people at church would think bad of me. I, I don't want you to think that way. I want you to think, I shouldn't get drunk, and here's why. Because the Bible says, don't be drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit. Because that gives you something you can hang on to and stick with, because you understand the truth, not just reject what's false. So we need to be good students of the Bible. Now, if you say, well... I'm not going to get drunk because the churchy people would get mad at me. Uh, That may result in the same kind of thing, (laughs) but it won't be something that you can stick to because you have a reason behind your faith. So that's why we need to actually understand what the word of God says. You know, some people think that God is just a killjoy. I mean, just he doesn't want you to have any fun. And the reward for you never having any fun is you get to go to heaven when you die. So you suffer with with boredom and no fun in this life, so you can be all proper and good. And then your reward for that is heaven in the next life. That is false religion. That is getting something good from God by paying your dues here. A good servant refuses unholy teaching. Verse 7 says, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. There's no reason, again, to put garbage in your head. Just stay away from it. A good servant trains for godliness. Now, the end of verse 7, going into verse 8, says, rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now let me ask you, is training easy? I mean, no, if you want to be a long distance runner, you're going to have to spend a lot of time out in the heat and the misery and running and then building up your endurance, and it's not easy. If you want to be muscular, what do you have to do? You have to train with resistance, right? You have to pick up heavy stuff over and over, right? (laughs) Okay, so if you have the idea... That you never need to do any heavy mental, mental heavy lifting in pursuit of godliness, you got the wrong idea. He says, train for godliness. You know, it doesn't even make sense to think we're going to train and become adept at something that we don't put any effort into. Training your mind and spirit are more profitable than training your body. Obviously, I have understood the realization of this, right? (laughs) I made my choice here. Now, it'd be better to train both, but who has time for that? So training in godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. Physical training is good, but eventually you're fighting a losing battle, right? No matter how hard you work your body, the thing is going to wear out eventually. But... Training in godliness is something that's profitable for this life and for the rest of eternity. To punctuate this statement, Paul says in verse 9, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So apparently this was kind of a proverbial saying in the early church, but Paul liked it and agreed with it. And he said, this is, this is a good saying. Now number five here, I want you to see that a good servant works hard for the kingdom. Verse 10 says, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. This is like the training that we just discussed. Nobody said it was supposed to be easy. Um, You know, is it difficult for you to witness to your neighbor? Okay. Toil and strive and do it anyway. You mean it's okay for me to work hard at this? Yes, it is. It is necessary for you to work hard at this. Let me give you two excellent reasons that you should toil and strive for godliness. Look with me if you want to flip over there to 2 Corinthians 5 verses 10 and 11. If not, it will be on the board here. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now he's writing to the church, right? Paul is writing to the church. He says all and his subject is the church. So he's talking about us. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. The first reason is that we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Do you want to be rewarded for a life of toiling and striving for your Lord? Honestly, think about this question. If you've zoned out, zoned back in, I'm going to ask you this very important question. Do you want to be rewarded for a life of toiling and striving for your Lord? If you love Him, the answer is yes. Now, if your honest answer was, I really don't care as long as I get into heaven by the skin of my teeth. That is some people's answer. Let me tell you what the problem with that is. That is not a love for God. That is a love for you that says, I'm not crazy. I don't want to go to hell. So that's a love for you, guys. A love for your Lord says, yes, I do want to toil. I do want to work hard. I do want to pursue godliness with everything in me. And if your honest answer is, man, I don't, I don't really care. I just want to make sure I get into heaven. Oh, let me plead with you to realize That again, that is a warning sign of very bad health or death, okay, spiritually. Think about that. Fear that. (laughs) Come and talk to me and say, hey man, I think that is my attitude. You know, you may have had that attitude for years and said, hey, I'm okay. I'm going to heaven when I die. But what's your motivation? Is it that you love yourself? Or do you actually love the Lord? The question here is, do you love God or love the stuff God can provide for you? Those are different questions. I don't say that to be mean, guys, but I love you enough to warn you. There are people sitting in pews all across this country who think they're going to heaven, who are going to get the horrible, worst possible revelation when they get to heaven where Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. Don't, I can't stand for that to be one of you, (laughs) right? That's why I'm here, is to make sure it's not one of you. So that's why I'm warning you. The first reason to toil and strive for Jesus is that one day you'll be judged on your labor. Now, you won't be judged as according to whether you're going to heaven or not. I won't be judged on my performance to get into heaven, or there is zero chance I would go there, Okay. What I will be judged on is my faithfulness and my obedience. And we want that judgment to go well for us. The next reason is what comes in the next verse that we need to work hard. It says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. You know what the destiny of the lost is, right? In light of that, do all that you can do to persuade them. And you may say, well, I feel uncomfortable talking about my faith. Okay, I understand. But consider for a moment the destiny of the lost and decide whether you feel a little uncomfortable is, is good enough reason for you not to share your faith. You know that it's not. The question is whether you'll do anything about it. And guys, this is where you turn off the preacher. The preacher starts saying that you personally need to share your faith, and you go, yeah, that's what he's supposed to say, but I'm not going to do it. How much longer we got? Right? (laughs) I'm asking you not to do that today. I'm asking you to think, what if I actually start sharing my faith with those people around me? Well, I don't know how. Okay, we'll teach you. Well, I'm scared. Oh, well, it's okay. (laughs) Well, they're going to ask questions I don't know the answer to. Yeah, maybe. I mean, that doesn't happen very often, but it's possible. Believe me, you can find a question to ask me that I don't know the answer to, but it's not going to keep me from telling you what I do know. Verse 10 continues with a peculiar saying. It says, the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. (laughs) Now, that's weird, isn't it? Here we have another text that if you read it in isolation, you might be tempted to think, well, that's cool, everybody's going to go to heaven in the end. We'll just join the Universalist Church, right? Of course, the problem with that interpretation is the whole rest of the Bible. So what does it mean? Uh, In the new Bible commentary, D.A. Carson and company write this. When Paul says that God is the Savior of all men and then singles out believers in a special way, he seems to be using the word Savior in the sense of both preservation and spiritual salvation. So what D.A. Carson and, and company are saying is, Um, he's the savior of all men in a way that doesn't mean the soul going to heaven. He means preserving, you know, how the Bible talks about that God allows it to rain on the just and the unjust. So he takes care of us. He gives us breath guys. If, if, if the Lord doesn't give you your next heartbeat, it's not going to happen. Right? So he is the savior of all men in that he takes care of us, uh, gives us opportunity, gives us life, gives us rain, all that kind of stuff but a very special and different and distinct blessing for those who believe. Uh, Another possible thing that he might mean is he may be saying, hey, he's the savior of all men, not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles. Uh, I don't know which it is, but most of the smart commentators that I read went with that first one. But anyway, we know that it's not saying that everybody is personally saved from their sin, but those who believe are. A good servant teaches truth. Verse 11 says, command and teach these things. Now Paul was writing to a pastor, so this is pointed directly at me. But as we all teach our children, our grandchildren, our Sunday school classes, our small groups, our friends and our neighbors as we share the gospel with them, we are to teach truth from scripture. Notice it says command and teach. We are to teach with authority. But guys, we, not the authority of our intellect, not the authority of our passions. Our authority comes from the authority of the Word of God. That's why if I'm up here telling you my opinion on stuff, you can take it or leave it. If I am telling you what the Word says, you've got to take it, right? <laughs> because the Lord is the one behind the Word. A good servant sets an example for the believers. Verse 12 says, Let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Now I, but also all of us, want to be a good servant. And we're to be examples to the church in our speech. Now what does that mean? Um, Well, we're to be honest. If we say we'll do something, we need to do that thing. Remember we talked about how deacons and elders were not to be double-tongued? To be double-tongued means you say one thing here and you say another thing next. So we need to be one, one single-tongued and we need to say what we mean and mean what we say. We can't say what's expedient in one situation to one group of people and then say a different thing to somebody else. We're to model integrity in our speech. Now some people think it doesn't matter if a Christian uses foul language. I, I, I don't understand those people. I disagree. It's entirely inconsistent for an ambassador of Christ to use language that he would not use. We're to be exemplary in conduct. Now, obviously, we all fail here from time to time. But there's a lot of my sin that you don't see, right? Because it happens in here. (laughs) So we need to develop some self-control and get to the point where every sinful impulse doesn't reach the surface. Our conduct, like our speech, is observed by people. And we represent our king as ambassadors, right? Our love should be worthy of imitation. Do you love the church? I mean, how can you tell? Well, do you look forward to assembling with the church and not forsaking the assembly? Do you serve in the church or just come here to be served? Those are questions that kind of give you your attitude about whether you love the church. What about faith? Are you a doom and gloom person who is opposed to every change and risk? Or are you confident that the Lord is in control? Now, pastors and the rest of us should pray in faith, walk in faith, and lead in faith. Now, remember, though, that faith is not wishful thinking, right? I'm never going to come to you and say, hey, God told me so-and-so. And and, uh, I think that, you know, if we get down to where there's 25 of us in here, um, we're going to be financially okay because I have faith. No, that's not faith. That's dumbness, right? So we need to have faith, but faith needs to be in the revealed Word of God, not just in our wishful thinking. In purity, it says... We need to be an example in purity. Now, that's a kind of catch-all if anything was left out. We're to be examples to the rest of the church as to a believer, how they ought to conduct themselves, right? The greatest burden of these things and, and the one the gun is aimed at is the pastor. But this is for all of us. Remember reading about having to appear before the judgment seat of Christ? Parents, you have a tremendous responsibility to model purity for your kids and for your grandkids. Remember last week we talked about how you, if you treat God's command to not forsake assembling together with, flippantly, then your kids are going to learn, oh, that's how we treat the commands of God. So we, we are to model purity before our kids and grandkids and before each other. now we've talked about how you're to behave today, right? We talked about that. And every time I talk about how you're to behave, I run the risk of you thinking, I've got to behave myself into heaven. That is not the case. We don't behave in order to get God's approval. We get God's approval by grace. And then we act the way we're told to because we're made a new creature in Christ, right? So let me make sure that you understand that. I know we have some visitors in here today. And you don't hear me say this every single week. (laughs) So let me say this again. Guys, we, as, as men and women, have rebelled against God. We've sinned. You know, the Bible says, don't do this, don't do this, do this. And we have the audacity to shake our puny little fists at God and say, we're going to do what we want to do. And, you know, Adam and Eve were the original problem. They fell and they rebelled against God. But we ratify their decision every time we sin, right? So we can't just blame it on them. So since we have rebelled against God, there's a problem. God is holy and he has to punish sin. Now, if we've rebelled and God must punish sin, we are out of luck. We can't do anything to fix it. We can't do anything to make ourselves perfect. But what God did was he sent his son to do what we couldn't do, who lived a perfect, righteous, holy life, and then died in our place. And so if you will commit yourselves to the Lord, if you'll repent of your sins, then he'll take Christ's perfect life of obedience and credit that to your account. And take your sin and credit that to Christ's account, which he paid for on the cross. Now, if you're here today and you've never done that, let me make sure to invite you to do that when we stand up. We're going to do three things. We're going to sing a song. That's four things. We're going to sing a song. But I'm going to invite you to come down for one of three reasons. One, you have something that you're praying about that you want me to pray with you. It would be my honor to do so. Number two, you want to join this church and place your membership here. Uh, Guys, I honestly don't understand why anybody would attend a church for a length of time, a continuing length of time with no plans to go elsewhere and not join them. Just join us if you're going to be here. We want you to be accountable to us. We want to be accountable to you. Join the church. Uh, The next thing is if you're not sure that if you died today you'd go to heaven, that's okay. It's Fine, it's good for you to admit that. Come and talk to me. We'll make sure you understand um, what the gospel is, okay?